Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Everybody, welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten podcast. Joining me on this rip is Alice Killeen, who is from Stillmark Ventures, a venture capital Bitcoin-only fund that deploys money into entrepreneurs and startups in the Bitcoin space. I've recently had Mike on the show, Mike Jarmutz from Lightning Ventures. Elise is here today to talk about venture capital as well. And I will be having uh, Chris Calicott on from Ventural, uh, Trammel Ventures as well. I love these interviews because I hope it's given you guys an insight as to what is going on behind the scenes. And don't forget, I've also had Jonathan Kirkwood on from 1031. You can go back and listen to those episodes. Be bullish. Be very bullish because there is so much going on that we are not completely um, you know, in the knowledge of. And Elise is here to tell us how she works, their method of finding the best companies to invest in and to make sure that they're going to be around for the next 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years as we build out the ecosystem around Bitcoin. She's very impressive. I think you're going to love her. And look out for the uh, some of these conferences that are coming up throughout the year. Make sure you get into Miami or Prague. Uh, hit the links in the show notes. You can get a 10% discount using the code BITTEN. That's all there in the show notes if you want to get there. Swan, Bitcoin and Relay are two supporters of this show. They are. They both have apps now. Swan have an app, so you can just download the apps and start smash buying and setting up your dollar cost average or fiat cost average plan. You can also call them and speak directly, get a white glove service to their private offering. Why would you not do that if you are looking to invest up to 100,000 euros or dollars or more in one year? Or if you're a business, Relay have Relay Business, where you can be onboarded as a business and start stacking sats straight onto your balance sheet with brilliant uh, uh, advice along the way. Coin Corner can offer you the same thing. They have merchant accounts. This is a great way for you to start orange pilling merchants in your region that you frequent. And you can also stack there as well and set up your auto buys. Now, Hoddle Hoddle are global and they are a global peer-to-peer -peer trading platform where you can get KYC free sets so you don't have to exchange passports or details with anybody you just log on to the platform, make yourself a uh, avatar and an account and start buying the Bitcoin that you need in the currency that you need. And they are throwing a conference, 2nd to the 3rd of September in Riga. Again, the Baltic Honey Badger. I'm going to be at all three of these that I've spoken to and I'm looking forward to seeing all you plebs hanging out in the bars as well. It's the best time. Meeting other plebs is so key. So get on Orange Peel app and start getting to know people who are closer to you and go and meet each other in real life. Anyway, back to stacking. Uh, up your privacy if there's something you need to do or are looking to do or want to learn about. Coin join services are out there. There are two or three in the main um, arena. You can use wasabiwallet.io. Just download that, create a wallet, run some sats through it, see if that's a service for you. And Shift Crypto have you covered for when you ultimately cold storage your sats, which you should be doing. If you've ever listened to this show or any of the other Bitcoin-only podcasts, they will tell you, get a hardware wallet. 
Get a Bitbox 02. Take control. Enjoy this rip with Elise. All right, we're recording. Elise, great to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thank you for having me on. You're welcome. Looking forward to the conversation, talking about how you found Bitcoin and venture capital, Bitcoin only venture capital, of course. But Lauren's got the, the juicy questions first. Hi. So Hi, I, nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you too. So I haven't had that much time uh, being able to think about the question. So I'm going to go up with my backup question. Um, what is your favorite thing about Bitcoin? I think my favorite thing about Bitcoin in 2023 is the people that we get to work with if we're focused on the space. So folks in Bitcoin are some of the most talented, most brilliant in the world. And they also have this other sort of odd thing about them, which is that they care about the impact of their work and not just the immediate impact, but what they see of it in the next decade or couple decades. And so everyone is working really with a mission to change the world for the better. And it's quite, it's it's really something special to be able to work with people that are both so bright and so well-intentioned. And because of both of those things coming together, they're just dedicated to their work, regardless of the external conditions. And so I feel really fortunate to be able to spend my time in that way. So we're not all toxic maximalists, Lauren. When did I say that? <laughs> <laughs> that that's just the um the, the kind of uh what's the reputation people in bitcoin get but as elise said oh. you, you would not meet uh, a bunch of more focused people that are focused on building for the future and for a better future and especially for for kids futures as well okay yeah all right well thank you for yeah. your question yeah thank you bye thank you good to meet you bye-bye nice to meet you Oh, thank you, Elise. Uh, right, yeah. Let, wh where do we start here? Where do we start? Let's start with um, who who is Elise, and uh, and what is it that you do? So I'm the founder and managing partner of a venture capital firm called Stillmark, which launched in 2019 to be dedicated to founders building in the Bitcoin lightning network and sort of broader community of of those advancing bitcoin and the value and principles of bitcoin for others and um within that work we've been able to partner with some of the most talented entrepreneurs and uh, operating teams in the world and so we in our portfolio of investments have companies like amboss technologies or a lightning labs um, teams like Gridless Compute, which is a mining company helping to bring new electricity to folks living off the grid in Africa, um, or teams like Satoshi Energy that are matching renewable energy companies with Bitcoin mining to add a profit center or really to turn these energy companies into their own form of bank. And so it's that's what I do. I get to spend my days really living in the future through supporting founders in recognizing a vision that they have for how Bitcoin can advance the world. Okay. Now, what I love doing is backing up and figuring out how you got to that path. What were the touch points? Sure. Uh, you know, what one, 
obviously you'd have had a, a different career. Nobody goes straight into Bitcoin venture capital. So what, what led mm -hmm. you there? What, mm -hmm. what happened after you'd left, uh, you know, uh, school or college? Uh, what was the path to finding Bitcoin and then launching your own fund? Well, partly through my family. So as you have your daughter at work with you, I was able to go to work with an, with one of my grandfathers who is entrepreneurial and he was in large scale sheet metal and plumbing. So he was on the business side, but of course this is very blue collar practical work. And so I had the experience of being able to see my grandfather and his team have this impact on how the city we lived in, that was San Francisco, really developed. And, you know, seeing and recognizing the value and the sort of tangible contribution to the community. And, and that actually became an experience that felt really dissimilar from what I was in academically. So I, I did undergrad, I went into a PhD program, and I felt in contrast to the feeling I had in working and, you know, being on the job with my grandfather, it felt really different. It felt more sort of um, intellectual in terms of the end pursuit was research papers. And I find, you know, it's fun to write and to think and to, you know, run experiments and gather data and try to consolidate new insights. But for me, what I valued and had learned to value by being at work with my grandfather was this tangible result of your work and seeing the world or even just your neighborhood change. And so in my academic career, I started to feel sort of disconnected from those initial family values. And that just made me curious about what else was possible for someone with a statistics and research background like I had. Um, and so what I sort of happened into was venture capital, but not because I wanted to pursue venture capital initially. I, I thought that, you know, I'll be an entrepreneur like my grandfather. And if I want to do that, I should probably network and meet investors and venture capitalists. And so that's what I started to do. And one of the first VCs that I met said to me, you know, at least with your background in research and writing and, and statistics, it might make sense to try your hand at the other side of the table and to see if you like venture capital. And so I agreed to a 10 week internship and that was more than a decade ago. So he was right, it worked, it clicked. And I started in venture, really looking at, at the time, um, really looking at new infrastructures like cloud networking, like data science. So we started calling, you know, the sorts of pursuits that I had studied academically, we started calling that, you know, data science and looking at how, you know, sort of early versions of um, artificial intelligence could be applied to build new things, including for enterprise. And that was my work. So I was doing investments in cybersecurity companies, um, you know, data center software companies, cloud companies, and the like. And I, during that same period, contemporaneously, I found Bitcoin. And because I was investing in infrastructure, I think I saw Bitcoin really first as an infrastructure for global inclusive finance. 
And so I saw the Bitcoin blockchain, the Bitcoin open ledger as a way to have a shared bank without the bankers. And for people in emerging markets or of lower socioeconomic status that had been turned away by the banks or traditional financial institutions to be included in the global economy, which of course also benefits those of us that have the privilege of being banked, because now we have an opportunity to transact and to share an economy with another couple billion people. And anyhow, it felt like it, there was this unavoidable truth that it was in 2013 when I found it, the absolute best use of my time to learn and figure out what this new technology was. Um, I continued to spend time in traditional venture capital, but also going to conferences, um, advising early teams, just really being in conversation with the engineers and operators that had the courage to get started that early in 2013 and 2014. And the benefit of that was that, you know, I could get all of my stupid questions answered and that built a foundation for understanding how the space was likely to develop. And so from that emerged Stillmark. So we have this really lovely base of community from engineers to early operators that have seen the space evolve and mature and came into Bitcoin for the promise of this new global connected economy that existed with rules, but without rulers, our basis, those people, and then also just the experience of seeing how the, how the ecosystem evolved and learning from early mistakes and early conversations, battles even, and using that to better understand Bitcoin. And so that's what we do now at Stillmark. So Stillmark is dedicated, as I said earlier, to founders building in the Bitcoin ecosystem. We divide that conceptually into three buckets. We're investing in founders that are helping to financialize BTC, the asset. So that would be companies in our portfolio like Casa that allows you to be your own bank using multisig or Hoseki, Sam Abbasi from Fidelity, the company that he launched when he left Fidelity, which allows you to make use of those assets that you're self-custodying or even that you may be holding with a custodian to say to prove your creditworthiness. So to really put your Bitcoin to use without having to move it, it's, it's pretty incredible. The second bucket is that we're investing in companies in the mining space. And I mentioned that at the very top of the call. So, you know, the space we know best is software. And we're interested in mining companies that are focused on leveraging software for efficiencies um, or opportunities in mining. But we're also investing in mining companies like Gridless that I mentioned earlier. The team is based in Kenya. And then the third bucket is we're investing in companies building second layer um, technologies or infrastructure and the apps or infrastructure built on top of that. And that's where Lightning Labs, Voltage, Amboss Technologies all fit. So we get to sort of see the space develop in this really lovely comprehensive way. We're not focused on any one subset of that, but just the opportunity of Bitcoin as a whole. And the hope is that if we do our jobs well in supporting founders, so the the way that we, you know, the very high level way that we think of our work is just 
We help accelerate founders in reaching their goal. If we do that well, then I hope that one of the consequences will be that we help to accelerate Bitcoin's adoption, Bitcoin's global adoption. Awesome. All right. I want to ask some questions about the old days. Uh, venture capital around 2010 time in San Francisco, is that correct? I got started in Los Angeles. Okay. Am I right around that time, 2010-ish? 2012. Okay. You got to have some good stories up your sleeve with the scene, the the tech scene and um, the investment scene in those days, uh, you know, obviously wasn't as crazy at, uh, you know, the turn of the millennium, but still plenty of opportunities. I got a few fun questions. I have good stories. Those are stories over drinks. So we, <laughs> you know, I, I just, um, you know, life is the balance of preparation and luck, right? <laughs> so I got really lucky to work and learn venture capital from folks that were quite experienced. And so the team that I started with had originally started their careers at one of the first or the first maybe accelerator that existed in the world, which was called Idea Lab, which started in Pasadena. And so Idea Lab was started by Bill Gross and he had a team of young guys that were there supporting companies and that later went on to start a venture capital firm to back those first version of e-commerce companies, basically. So the first companies that were sort of figuring out what apps could be developed on the web and what sort of business models were empowered by a world wide web. Um, though that first group of guys that worked with Bill Gross at Idea Lab formed a venture capital firm. And, you know, I guess a decade and a half later or three funds later, um, I joined that team. And so, you know, I was able to learn, you know, venture capital is a profession in which is both, you know, I suppose creative, but also frankly, there's a science to it. And so understanding the practice of venture capital and how to best, um, you know, allocate capital and a startup ecosystem so that you're helping that ecosystem to really flourish um, while at the same time producing returns for your investor base. You know, it's it seems fun. I think that's what people think, but there's also a science to it. And I was lucky to learn that from some folks that were quite good at it. And I have their stories, um, though I don't share them on podcasts, but it was, <laughs> you know, it's, I think there's a benefit in that. And it links back to the first thing I said in response to your daughter's question, which is that the character of who you invest in matters, actually. So if you're sort of messing around in crypto or Web3, evaluating someone's character and doing due diligence is going to be incredibly important. And we've seen that, right, yep. over the past few months. We've seen a lack of due diligence or of questioning someone's character come to not only cause harm to the venture capital firm, but to the broader ecosystem. And so now I'm talking about companies like FTX. Now, the benefit of being in Bitcoin, we still have to consider people's character, is that all the founders in Bitcoin are a self-selected group 
that have decided instead of spending their time launching a token or capitalizing on people's gambling behavior to take a fraction of a transaction of each sort of gambling exchange, instead of doing that, they're going to try to help bank the world or try to help bring payments to poor people. Um, or try to help, you know, privileged people, people without privilege, everyone be able to opt out of the fiat system that they live in and have another option. Um, so anyhow, it, it speaks to someone's character and most fundamental decision making that they would choose instead of the pursuit of quick money, a longer path that can have an equal or better return as that quick money, but it's going to be a grind and hard work. So, you know, we have the incredible benefit of being surrounded by people of that type of character. And then, you know, of course, it's still important to do due diligence and make sure we really know who we're investing in and also that they know us because it's sort of a 10 year deal. And so you want to make sure that everyone is signed up for the relationship that they're getting into. It's um, it's a warning as well, isn't it? I think uh, for for those entrepreneurs out there that are trying to build Bitcoin only businesses, but are being courted by uh, crypto capitalists that are looking just to throw money at them just because they've got some. You know, if if you look at one of the the venture capital funds, like uh, in in the crypto world, Web three, DeFi, DAP, whatever, um, they will have X amount of budget to allocate each year, and that you know, they're clearly not doing enough due diligence, and they just want to get as much deal flow in as possible. So, you know, what what's your message, I suppose, to entrepreneurs? in the Bitcoin only space that have self-selected and have chosen to do that, that are trying to build a business, but are struggling to find that capital to help them grow or to keep, you know, give them another 10 months of runway. Um, because the, the, the temptation to take that crypto money must be very, very hard to turn down. It depends on what's expected in return for the capital. So I think that, you know, being a founder in any space is very difficult. And Bitcoin, building a company in Bitcoin is not dissimilar from building a company, say, in the cloud infrastructure space in 2013, for example. Um, what you're doing is you're ultimately selling a piece of your company in exchange for resources to help further your growth. Now, what you know, what Vitalik figured out, and you know, the folks in crypto followed him into was that if you launch a token that you control and hold the bag on, you don't have to sell a part of your company to access resources. And what venture capitalists figured out, though I think that's a misnomer because this doesn't really feel like a venture capital practice, what investors have figured out is that if they purchase a token, they actually don't have to worry about the outcome of the company or the company's growth because they can exit the token. And this is very unique to tokens. They can exit the token to an unsophisticated purchaser 
or a retail investor. So in venture capital, and why I think this is quite dissimilar from venture capital and venture capital, we buy ownership of a company. And when we sell, it's through these very organized, thoughtful activities like um, a merger or acquisition, where the purchasing company is presumably going to know a lot about why they're making the purchase and being quite, they will be quite capable of doing diligence. Or you're, or you're exiting to a public market. And with the support of bankers that are going to be very deep in the weeds on your financials and not just current but in the prior years of your operation. Um, so we have to care about how the company is doing, the business model that they've built, the value proposition and the appeal of the value proposition to that company's user base. Not only is it working today, but is it sustainable? So if you have um, 10 million users and let's say $100 million in revenue per year this year, is your product going to appeal to those same 10 million users and to that degree in two years or three years or four years? Because when you're investing to own equity in a company, you have to assume that no, not only will that be true, but the, the product and value proposition will be even more appealing to more users or to users who are willing to spend more to access the value proposition. But in the token world, because you're not exiting your token, usually through M&A or with the support of uh, you know, sophisticated bankers reviewing the company, you can sort of sell and realize a return just based on the excitement of a retail market. So maybe there is a group of teenagers or college students that are really excited about a new celebrity endorsing the token, for instance. We saw the SEC start to signal that they're going to crack down on this. Um, but if this group is really excited about this celebrity's endorsement of the token, you can exit off of that momentum. And so I'm not sure that that's the practice of venture capital, but we're calling it venture capital or the media is calling it venture capital right now. And so, you know, if founders are, it's difficult to be a founder that's selling equity. It's hard to raise money for all companies at some stage of their growth. And so if founders, founders just need to know how to calibrate their fundraising message based on who's on the other side of that message. And if they're taking money from a crypto focused firm, that can be okay. And I would defer that decision to founders but they, you know, they need to know what's being asked of them or what they're what they're obligated to in exchange. And also understand the sort of risk that the firm is exposed to because that can come to affect the founders. So that's how I would, you know, coach um, or, or support a founder that was thinking through that kind of decision. And a lot of Bitcoin founders find themselves faced with that sort of decision of. Do I take money from a crypto firm or do I not complete my round, for example? And um, I I know how, well, I don't know, but I can imagine how hard it is to build a company. And so I don't judge or deem it as a negative. If a Bitcoin company has also taken money from a crypto firm, I think that's fine. Um, as long as the founder has done so, you know, thoughtfully and generally, generally they have. 
Yeah, you just don't want to get trapped into um, being forced into uh, offering services or products that are completely against the yes. original ethos of what you built that company to do and you know and to offer. That's exactly right. So those are the sorts of conversations we have when people bring on crypto focused firms or what's more, you know, what's even sort of more present in the space is maybe not firms that think of themselves as crypto focused, but generalist VC funds who are super enthusiastic about Ethereum. Because Ethereum has a marketing team that has sort of, you know, convinced these folks that and some of these folks are, you know, incredibly brilliant, but just don't have, you know, um, like haven't really like felt or grokked the difference between Ethereum and Bitcoin yet. So those are the decisions that Bitcoin founders are having to make is do I work with this generalist fund that prior has either been backing, you know, typical enterprise tech companies or consumer companies, plus you know, four or five or six Ethereum companies. Do I onboard? Do I onboard this investor in my new fundraise? Um, you know, or do I sort of like leave this gap in terms of how much I was planning to raise? And if I do onboard that investor, how do I do so successfully so that their misunderstanding of Ethereum isn't something or whatever it is? It could be Solana or something else. So that their misunderstanding of this other sort of investment activity they've had doesn't negatively impact my company. And I think you can certainly do it, um, but it's always good to know, like I said at the very start, even if you're working with a Bitcoin focused VC, it's always important to know who the person is that you're going to be working with when you take money from someone. And understanding what they bring to the table, um, whether it be good, bad, or neutral, in addition to the capital that they're investing, and and that's true of firms, you know, that we would define as crypto firms too. So, how does it typically work? Uh, you, you've mentioned you generally buy uh, stake in the company. Is there kind of because we're so new here, right? Like that we we are just footsteps into this sector. Um, there is no real playbook. You can probably throw away the old playbook from the old uh, venture capital world, keep some pages, but in terms of what percentage are you looking for? How much capital are you deploying? How do you, um, you know, structure the deal? Is that all kind of completely unique to each deal or is there something, some order being put in place now? How do you guys come at it? And how do you differ from yes. other funds? This is a really great question. And I think it's really important information um, for founders to have. So first of all, you know, you don't throw away the playbook for venture capital for Bitcoin companies because venture capital, setting aside the fact that many in Silicon Valley have been so confused by Ethereum, mm -hmm. you know, and just to like, come from a place of humility for a second, this is all hard to understand, you know? And what's really hard to understand is that what Satoshi did that was unique was he figured out a way to align the incentives of disparate stakeholders such that no authority is required to maintain um, and even advance this incredible inclusive system that ultimately is a ledger of transactions. Um, you know, these folks in Silicon Valley and outside of Silicon Valley, but that are a part of it, that have built 
you know, careers over the decades um, and have more experience in venture capital than I do, they're not used to that dynamic. You know, they're used to the dynamic of a winner, a winner take all approach, data aggregation being important in terms of building a moat against competitors and, and accruing value. Um, you know, they want to know that if something happens, like for instance, a loss of funds, um, if someone steals, you know, this hundred million dollars over here, like in the Dow hack, can I get it back? Can they get it back? Actually, they, you know, I think that most traditionally minded couple decades of experience folks in venture are going to think that it's a very good thing that if a hacker breaches and exchanges security and steals money, that you could change, amend the that blockchain's history to get the money back from the attacker. Most would think that that was very positive. So anyhow, to understand the reasons why it's not and you know how the incentive system that Satoshi designed based on this couple prior decades of experimentation and how to build a decentralized financial system, a, a true digital currency. Um, they don't, you know, it's, it's like that sort of, um, if, uh, you know, like nebulous piece that you can only feel but you can't really intellectually understand. These folks don't get it. And, you know, I think also they maybe lack the motivation to get it because they've had very successful careers built on a completely different model. So when one of these, you know, excited and very confident um, people from the Ethereum or other crypto spaces come in and tells them they've built a better Bitcoin, like that makes sense to them. And it's like a cozy message. You know, especially if you can see that you, who are so smart after a couple of decades of success in building startups, right? If you, as someone that's so smart, can influence that protocol and the rules and how they're applied and to who, it kind of gives you like a warm and fuzzy feeling, right? So just to try to take on the perspective of folks that have really felt drawn to other cryptocurrencies, um, I think it's all complex, especially if your life experience prior to, you know, meeting uh, Vitalik or coming to Bitcoin, you know, has has suggested that authority is really important. Um, you know, so I, I sort of can like understand and try to empathize with that perspective, um, though I think that it's wrong. I am realizing, Daniel, that I lost track of your initial question. Can you remind yeah, it me? It was like how you were structuring the deal. So yeah, you, okay. you were going through so, like uh, the, the old playbook and you, you show an empathy towards how people were not um, getting to the, the stage so you these, So while these folks that I just described don't really grok Bitcoin, they do understand venture capital. And... You know, venture capital, it they have, you know, venture capital has been around for several decades and it's been really optimized to support founders that are building an enterprise that they intend to take to the public markets or to build to, you know, a significant size that produces these, you know, significant returns for venture capitalists and also for founders and operating teams. 
So, you know, while the folks that have been distracted by Ethereum, you know, are sort of not going to like really get what's going on in the space, they do understand venture capital and that's an asset to the founders that they back. And so we, you know, we sort of have to acknowledge that. And then at the same time, there's a group of generalist VC funds that also deeply understand venture capital, but sort of haven't made a move yet, either towards Bitcoin or towards crypto. And then there's a smaller subset of Bitcoin VCs. And some of those folks in Bitcoin VC have experienced and understand the practice of venture capital, and some are in the process of ramping up. And so what I hope is, you know, special um, and definitional of Stillmark is that we can both bring the science of venture capital and the knowledge and network in Bitcoin together to support founders. And so they can understand how the construction of a round, how building your cap table or defining terms, including like discrete sort of confusing terms in a term sheet or in the definitional docs to a financing. So they can understand how that's going to affect their position as founders or their company over the long term, because it does. Um, then there's other sorts of just general, uh, maybe not rules, but um, you know, sort of like learned and repetitive sets of best practices or ways to grow a company in terms of how things operate. So for example, um, how do you mature your org structure? How do you how do you change your team? Put people, promote people to put them in positions of leadership, or maybe move people laterally when the company is really scaling. So when you're going from a four-person team and then things take off, and now you need an 18-person team, what does that look like? And how do you actually do that? So I think that those are the sorts of questions that people who have experience in the field of venture capital or company building are going to be able to support founders with, whether or not you know they've also backed crypto companies, they'll still know those sort of operating pieces. Um, and it's still Mark, what we're trying to do is to both deeply know Bitcoin and be able to support our portfolio companies with these just practical pieces of how do you go through these stage shifts in growing a company? Or you posed this question earlier, if you're raising a really large round and you know you're going to need to work with people that are general VCs, but have also backed crypto companies, how do you work with them in a way so that both they feel fulfilled and that they understand what you're doing and excited about it, while also making sure that they're you know, passion for crypto isn't something that becomes disruptive for your Bitcoin company. So all of those things are, you know, fundamental to the practice of venture capital and Bitcoin venture capital. Typically, what kind of percentage would you guys be looking to uh, purchase, for want of a better word, or in so invest? Thank you for repeating that um, detail of your prior question. So we don't have a hard and fast rule there, but for a major investment or if we lead an investment, so meaning if we work with the founder to draft the terms and the, and the documents, then that will mean that we're purchasing 5% or more of that company's equity. Mm -hmm. 
And in in the total round, we would want to see it's it's typical in a very early round. So let's say seed or pre-seed or maybe series A that you'll sell somewhere in each round that you'll sell somewhere between 15 and 25% of your equity. Mm -hmm. And we like to see it 20% or less. And we probably wouldn't participate. We would be, um, you know, really like um, circumspect in participating in a round that sold more than 25% of the company's equity. Now, if you, if when you complete a financing, you do that through the sale of equity versus a safe, um, what, what happens is, is that in the next round, when you sell that say 15 to 20% of your equity, that will come from the total pie. So it doesn't just come from the founders or the people that holds the common shares, but it also dilutes the ownership positions of the prior investors too. So that the founder is, you know, sort of preserving their position a, a, a bit longer by spreading the dilution across all shareholders versus just those in common. So that's one of the advantages of doing around um, through the sale of equity versus a safe. How, um, how interesting is it to you to be the lead investor? Is that something you strive to like, you know, be the first, is that a competitive edge to have over some of the other investment firms or do you look for uh, the other investment firms are the lead and that gives you a, you know, a nice big kind of a green flag to start the due diligence. How do you kind of like manage finding new deals and, and being the first to the punch? Okay. So um, I think those are two questions. So first about leading or not. So Stillmark doesn't have a firm position about that. We're really focused only on the founders and the model they're pursuing and the market that they're targeting. So it's really sort of those three variables. We are very happy to lead. We're very happy to co-lead, or we can just sort of follow the leads. Mm -hmm. um, and that would be perfectly fine. And we have examples of all of that in the portfolio. So for instance, Gridless was a co-lead with Block. Um, and let me think, and Voltage, when we invested in Voltage, that was, we just participated behind um, Trammell Venture Partners, one of our um, friends in venture capital. We participated to follow along on the term sheet that they had drafted in their lead of that round. And so we can really do either thing. And we prefer that the founder decide what they feel is sort of the best recipe for success in that round. Now, in terms of finding things first or not, I suppose that, you know, we also really don't mind the dynamic there either. Sometimes we find things first and, you know, sometimes another VC firm will bring it to us and both of those things are great. Um, now we do, you know, we're a thesis led fund. So what that means is that we look at the Bitcoin space, we look at where the protocols are. So we look at Bitcoin Core and, you know, the sort of like the last um, update. So 
in recent history, that would mean what does SegWit mean for the entrepreneurial space or what does Taproot mean for the entrepreneurial space? Um, or we'll, we will look at how Lightning Network implementations are maturing or the side chains that are being built and developed and enhanced in the Bitcoin space like Liquid Network. We'll look at all of that. We'll try to, you know, sort of um, be creative and thinking through what that could mean for how Bitcoin develops the utility set that will be possible in the Bitcoin space and what entrepreneurial pursuits will be newly possible. And from there, we form uh, theses about what will be not only possible, but also valuable in terms of driving adoption and also um, you know, producing um, enterprise value. And then we will go out and look for companies and teams that we have confidence in to lead the pack in that sector. And so that's how we operate. So sometimes we'll find teams before they have started fundraising. And, you know, sometimes we'll find teams because in the, let me use Gridless as an example again, we'll be talking to one of our friends in the field, in this case with Gridless, we met Gridless through Obi of Fediment who, you know, of course, is just such a brilliant mind in the Bitcoin space and, um, you know, someone that is very broadly connected. And we told Obi, you know, we would like exposure in the mining field in this way. We're really excited by the opportunities that we see exist um, in the continent of Africa. And, you know, if that comes across your desk, will you, you know, please let us know. And so Obi was able to introduce us to Eric and Philip of Gridless, two very, very experienced entrepreneurs with a couple decades of, you know, success in building. And that's how we came to Gridless versus finding it on our own. Um, a different story would be around Amboss. We found Amboss you know, sort of directly, um, they, they reached out to us. But let me tell you, Daniel, that um, when I got Jesse's message um, from Amboss, I already had the Amboss Technologies page open on my computer. So we found Amboss through the development of a thesis about how Lightning Network would mature and sort of what it would mean to be able to have um, almost an abstraction layer on lightning for enterprise to be able to adopt it and to not have to have, you know, um, a prior four years of experience in operating a lightning node, but to just sort of be able to jump in and what tools would they need to do that. But also, what tools are node operators lacking right now? And so with those sorts of themes, running through our mind, we were looking for a company really just exactly like Amboss. And there's a few doing things that are similar, but there's no one like Jesse and Tony or people, Jestifer um, and Tony who launched Thunderhub. And so, you know, by the time Jesse reached out to us, we sort they were sort of already on our radar. So I would count that as, you know, something that we discovered. So both paths are, you know, fine and good, and we don't have a preference or any sort of um, need to own the discovery of a company. We're just 
you know, sort of here to make sure that we know the founders in the space and can identify the right time to partner with folks in building their companies. Do you find it more collaborative in, in this space than the um, the legacy kind of venture capital world that you come from? I don't know, because we collaborated a lot in the legacy, um, or I would say traditional venture capital space too. So I like that you're saying legacy, Daniel, because I think that in a way this is true because right now people call Stillmark a Bitcoin venture capital firm. But probably in a decade, that will be like saying today, you know, that X venture capital firm is an internet venture capital firm, right? It wouldn't make sense. And so the generalist or traditional firms that exist today, um, you know, maybe in a decade, we can refer to them as legacy firms if they haven't adopted Bitcoin, because it will be so ubiquitous as the internet is that really to not invest in Bitcoin, you know, that will be inconsistent with the practice of venture capital in, in any in any manner. Um, so in my prior work in a traditional venture capital firm, and like I described, we were focused on infrastructure and enterprise tech. I did a little bit of consumer tech there too, but mostly um, these deeper techs. We were really collaborative, honestly. So we would, we would also lead or co-lead or participate to follow on with other leads and deals, I would often reach out to other firms to sort of talk through what we were seeing um, and what they were excited about. And so the same, you know, carries over into the Bitcoin space. And venture capital is a really small field. So whether or not you consider someone a peer, they are your peer. It just, this is, this is what it is. So even if we are, aren't all at the same firm, fundamentally, we're all sort of participating in the same practice and it's, it's quite small. And so, you know, collaboration is just inherent to the job. All right. When you discovered Bitcoin back in 2013, what were the resources you were trying to get yourself up to speed with? Because there wasn't a great deal back in those days were we were, were there even meetups did you get to meet some of the, the the early people over on the west coast there yes um that's a great question so it was an advantage to not have as many resources in 2013 um or 2014 because right now it's very noisy um which is why it's easier to empathize with people that don't understand bitcoin yet so in 2013, when I found Bitcoin, um, I found it like a couple of times and then I guess I was hooked. Um, but what I did was really rely on the white paper and the cypherpunk mailing list chats. So I remember my background was in research, right? So academically. So what I did was I went back through the chat logs um, where Satoshi was explaining what he had done or thinking through various, you know, sort of elements of Bitcoin or Bitcoin's likely path towards scale with various folks on the mailing list and how Finney is a name that people are familiar, familiar with. And he was there um, and there were many others. So I'm talking about historical logs versus current. Um, and then I also went back. So I went through all of that, but I also went back beyond that to what I was trying to do was to as much as I could understand um, where Satoshi was coming from 
in discovering and, um, you know, launching Bitcoin. Um, because if we could understand that, the way I thought about it was if we could understand that, we could have better intuition about how Bitcoin would develop. And so, you know, the the white paper was starting point one, Cypherpunk mailing list with uh, discussions with Satoshi and also without Satoshi, just the group talking about Bitcoin was point two. And then point three was going back into the history of the attempts, the prior attempts to develop digital currency or a decentralized ledger. And, you know, obviously Satoshi was, you know, he built Bitcoin off of those learnings. And so I wanted to learn those things too. So that was what I did. The other two really good sources at that time were Adam Back, who had a lot of great long form content um, in podcasts and other interviews and Andreas Antonopoulos. And so, you know, in 2013 or 2014, if you went onto YouTube and you searched for Bitcoin, the people that would pop up would be um, Andreas or Adam. And there was a Bitcoin talk show too, right? So it was just all signal. And the advantage of that was that you didn't have to try to decipher the message from, you know, highly skilled salesmen versus Adam back, right? There wasn't, you know, that wasn't a challenge that we had to overcome. It was just sort of trying to figure out what Adam was talking about. But the things that he were ta was talking about were just really fundamental things like why fungibility is important. And, you know, so that was sort of how I spent my time in ramping up in the space. And it was a real privilege to be able to do so in a period where um, the space was less noisy. Wow, that's hardcore. Going straight to the uh, the mailing list and and then trying to figure out what was uh, coming before. Uh, yeah, I was a little. No one's ever little... accused us of not being hardcore, Daniel. So I think <laughs> that's um that's part of what we who we are. That yeah, uh, and, and for listeners that want to try and find some of those um, conversations, Bill Champagne's got a great book called uh, The Book of Satoshi. I don't know if you've lived through that, which you, you're not. I'm familiar. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that is like reading. Oh, it, it's great. Uh, it fills in so many gaps, uh, as you well know. So yes. if anybody's. Yes. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. If you read the cypherpunk mailing chats, you are reading a historical document that lets you see the future. Mm -hmm. Here's an example of how it's practical. The Segwit2x debates the chaotic battle that happened around the New York agreement and Segwit2x, that those sorts of questions had already been discussed in the cypherpunk mailing list around how Bitcoin would scale and what would likely be needed and why you wouldn't take path X um, over Y. And, and then, you know, what, and what those opinions um, or decisions, those judgments were based on from an understanding that Bitcoin is not point zero, but Bitcoin is based on a couple of decades of prior work. And so going into, you know, sort of like the commotion in 2017, that was the Segwit2x debacle, I felt like I had the cheat code, which was just the mailing list conversations, Daniel. You know, so there's, you know, it's not indulgent 
to read these historical documents. It's a way to see the future because these are people, you know, we're sort of like all meandering around now, right? Trying to learn more about Bitcoin. But the people in the mailing list, they had, these were all people that had like dedicated their lives to trying to get to the point where Bitcoin would be possible. So they, they you know, as deeply as you can like understand what Bitcoin is or what it could be, that's there. We all have access to that. All of the VCs that are confused about Ethereum also have access to it, right? So I would consider that, um, you know, a part of basic due diligence mm -hmm. that VCs should engage in prior to investing in Bitcoin or crypto. Which many of them didn't and lost hundreds of millions of dollars in the process of watching FTX disappear in front of their eyes. Sure. Although I understand from them, they've made so much money elsewhere that they're not bothered by losing that money. But the problem is, is that a lot of people lost money they couldn't afford to lose. Great for Sequoia that it didn't matter. You know, um, too bad for the families and individuals that assumed that Sequoia, who has the reputation of being the best venture capital firm in the world, um, you know, I mean, I think it's reasonable to assume that if Sequoia backs a company that they've diligence that company and that that company is led by a person of good character and that, you know, sort of the basics are in place and people lost money, people of less privilege than Sequoia and their LPs lost money they could not afford to lose, mm -hmm. you know. And Sequoia, the people that led this investment at Sequoia, like practically not the names on it, but the people that actually advocated for and led this investment have a lot of material online about why they did the investment, how they promoted it internally at Sequoia to the partners that knew much less about crypto than they did, and then why others should be excited about FTX. There's a lot online. So if you want to really see a breakdown in standards of due diligence and of what it is to be a responsible professional in the field of venture capital, those videos are um, informative. And, you know, I, um, I, FTX mistake would have surely been avoided if those investors had read the cypherpunk mailing list, um, you know, for sure. So maybe a way to save money and heartbreak is to do, you know, the basic work of understanding where Bitcoin came from. And the, yeah, the, the, the overarching question here is why, why wasn't it done? Why wasn't it done correctly? They would have had the training have had the experience why did it all fall down in this particular case i think um what you know we talked about tokens earlier so if you're operating in an environment where you can produce incredible returns what were multi coins multi-coin capitals returns 
before the FTX collapse. I mean, it was like crazy, right? And and by the way, what did they back? What did they back that has a sustainable value proposition? Can you tell me from their portfolio? What's in that portfolio that you expect to see around in five years? Okay. So if you're in an environment where a top returning firm um, can get to that spot without building anything, you know, just, I think that's objectively true. Um, you know, maybe you start to value due diligence less. I'm not in that environment, so I don't know how you get to that spot. And I just, um, you know, I, I still Mark and the people that we work with, um, you know, we're all sort of folks that care about the quality of our work and the outcome, not just the outcome. So, and here's why this is important in venture capital. And by the way, limited partners. So that's the name for people that invest in venture capital firms. Limited partners know that this matters. It's not just about having a successful portfolio or making a successful investment, but it's about having repeatable processes in place so that when you have success, it's not luck-based, but it's, you know, maybe it's, again, preparation and luck. Most of life's success is, including business success. But are your processes in place so that, you know, you're running a good process and you're setting yourself up for one, two, three, four, and multiple, six, multiple you know, moments um, and companies of success. And, you know, that's the world that we live in and, I think that, well, here's another thing that I noticed actually in watching the videos of the 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 real leads at Sequoia and what they said about FTX. Um, you know, these partners that have built these older guys, right? Just practically speaking, if you have two or three decades of experience in venture capital, you're older. Um, and these older guys that are incredibly brilliant in venture capital and um, I have had the benefit of watching their work and reading, uh, you know, their thoughts on venture capital and about their practices. And um, they're very brilliant um, and they're also very busy. And so they have largely not had time to ramp up on Bitcoin, on Ethereum, on Solana, on the long tail of tokens. And so they're deferring to these younger new partners who are not at all prepared and who seem really smart because they understand the lingo and how things work. So there's like this superficial level of um, incredible intelligence about like how to tweak, um, you know, an AMM to be attractive to more LPs, right? Like what does that mean practically? The partners don't know. But when you're hearing, you know, like this younger person that's super excited about crypto speak, you know, it sounds really smart and, you know, maybe even it sounds more complex than what you yourself as an older partner are able to ramp up on or have the time to ramp up on. And so these decisions are getting um, deferred to younger folks that maybe don't have the same care and respect for the firm, frankly, or for the brand that they're working for and are playing it super loose and fast. 
And, um, you know, it's a little sad. So let me say this, which is, you know, probably not at all obvious, but I'm in venture capital because I really believe in the field, actually. And my grandfathers, like I said before, were entrepreneurs. And like, I just believe in, there's no one I respect more than an entrepreneur that sees an opportunity to create value for a community or a population and decides to dedicate their life and blood, sweat, and tears to doing that. I just, there's nothing I could respect more than that. And so, you know, I'm in venture capital because I think my joy is in trying to like help people accelerate, help entrepreneurs accelerate their path to doing this good, right? And um, anyway, the reason why I say this is because I have, I don't just have a passion for Bitcoin, but I also have a passion for venture capital. So to see these incredible firms like Sequoia making such obvious and awful mistakes, and FTX was not their first, um, it's sad and disappointing and almost like painful because actually I love venture capital and I, I feel like I understand the power that, that it has when it's done well. And I'm super bummed out that we don't get the value of some of those older, brilliant minds at Sequoia paying attention to like lightning or liquid or even Bitcoin, where their partnership with some of the incredible founders we have in the space, maybe it would be meaningful, you know? I'd like to see, like I'd like to be able to experiment with that, you know? But instead they're distracted by investments like Bitmain. Mm -hmm or FTX. Um, and anyhow, it just feels really like a missed opportunity. And I hope at some point we get to have access to those sorts of minds in Bitcoin. And in the meantime, you know, Stillmark is here, not with their two or three decades of venture capital experience, but with a decade, you know, and like I said, we are sort of, we're researchers, we're studiers, and we care about the quality of our work. And so as much as we can pull from that decade of experience to apply on behalf of our founders, we will. Um, but it's hard to see, you know, these um, very accomplished firms making these, you know, e easy mistakes. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a gross misallocation of capital, right? You know, mm -hmm. all of that all of that capital destroyed overnight mm -hmm. that could have been put to so much better use. And whether that's mm -hmm. capital as in, you know, dollars or whether that's capital in the, the mines, the actual good mines that are working at these um, places that are just getting completely ignored because FOMO's kicking in somewhere and, you know, the younger crowd perhaps are trying to make a mark for themselves and they've got to get the deal on the go and in front of the right people and, we have to be in this one. All of these fiat incentives are so bad. Mm -hmm. And then you look at the pure VC, uh, pure Bitcoin VC side, and everything seems so much more stable, researched, steady, uh, thought through. And it is, it is investing, it is attracting, excuse me, a lot of capital. Um, well, that's one question. You know, anybody listening to this that would be interested in becoming a limited partner, how does that look? What what what's that kind of process? Mm -hmm. 
So, um, okay, well, so just practically, to be a limited partner in a venture capital firm, one needs to be an accredited investor, which has a you know a very specific meaning and a requirement of um, minimal amount, a minimum amount of total assets. Um, Stillmark has worked with both high net worth individuals, family offices, um, as well as institutional investors like university endowments or um, fund of funds. And, you know, so we have a pretty broad base. Um, and I have to say, it's been especially fun to work with Bitcoiners. And, oh, here's another group that we really enjoy working with. Um, and, and by the way, there's crossover between some of this, like the university endowments have Bitcoiners at them. Some of them do, and that's really fun. Um, although we, you know, we can also work with and do work with folks that, you know, are just ramping up on Bitcoin and it's not their main thing. And we work with some of those folks too. Um, but it's really fun to work with Bitcoiners. And it's also really fun to work with um, former founders. And so we've had the pleasure of doing that too. And, um, you know, we, so we don't disclose our LPs, but we've had some come on board that have built really incredible and like fun and notable companies in the traditional tech space um, or consumer tech space that, you know, now they're sort of like figuring out what they want to spend time on. And they learned about Bitcoin and decided that they wanted to participate, you know, and invest in a Bitcoin VC fund. So anyhow, it's just really, really, I feel that we have a really lovely, smart, um, just, you know, fun and thoughtful um, group of limited partners. And um, it's just been a pleasure to build out the network in the way that we have. Um, we do, you know, we do sometimes um, get outreach from people that we know, and that's fine. And it's the same, it's very similar actually to our, the way that we meet founders or the way that we start working with founders. Sometimes people will reach out, sometimes we'll reach out to them. And, you know, that's the way that it works and how we build the network and sort of like community that's really at the foundation of Stillburn. And if you guys, I mean, you're, you're a business, you're going to be growing, I'm sure. What's your plan for scaling? How do you find the next wave of invest uh, VCs to come in and, and researchers and, and work within Stillmark? Yeah, that's a great question. So we, you know, sort of just try to know what's going on. So we pay, I try to pay attention to folks that have good insight on Bitcoin. So, um, yeah, there's just, I mean, I'm not going to, that's our, you know, proprietary um, insights, but there's a lot of like really incredible minds in the Bitcoin space. And so we're looking for folks that have that sort of like, you know, there's, there's some folks that are just like native thinkers in Bitcoin. And I know you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've interviewed many of those folks, but there's just some folks that I don't know how, but they 
you know, we're born into the world to work on Bitcoin. And so we try to pay attention to all of those people. And some of those folks will become portfolio founders. Like, let me give you an example. Um, Paul Itoy, who is building Stackwork and Sphinx Chat. Like, I don't know how, but Paul is someone from the future that just understands Lightning Network. And um it's incredible. And so we're, you know, we're looking for, and, and also, by the way, you can build an incredible company in the Bitcoin and Lightning space without having that sort of, you know, like obsession or connection to Lightning. And we work with those folks too. But anyhow, in terms of building Stillmark as a firm, that's what we're looking for. Now, there's something else going on that we haven't talked about yet, which is the intersection of Bitcoin with other um, areas of innovation, other technologies and other trends. And so with that in mind, and especially as a thesis-driven fund, we are paying attention to other areas and technologies that we expect to influence Bitcoin, Bitcoin's adoption and Bitcoin's opportunity space or how enterprise value is created in the future. And so looking for folks with expertise in those areas is also important. And that will be a part of how Stillmark grows as well. Um, I hope that, did that answer the question, Daniel? Yeah, and I was just wondering if anybody is listening and thinks that they might be able to, you know, help you guys. Are you looking for anybody? Is there, you know, space available? Could um, somebody reach out and uh, and apply for a role? Um. Yeah. So let's see. So normally, I mean, they definitely can. It's. Um, I don't want to. So we sort of we're opportunistic. So we don't have a spot open and we also don't not have a spot open, if that makes sense. So yeah. we're opportunistic in how we think about building. And really what's most important in terms of growing the team is thinking about how Stillmark is able to support the founders in the portfolio. And so it's quite dynamic in terms of how we think about what's important to um, include in internally at Stillmark in order to best support our founders. So we're paying attention to all of that and that will be the primary driver in who and when we add people to the team. It'll be about where the market is and how that's affecting our founders and, and how the portfolio shapes up. So another thing about growing a venture capital firm is thinking about you know the right size of a next fund um, and how that links to the portfolio that you plan to build. And so this is something else that's really different from the token world, but in venture capital, when you're building a firm and you're doing that through the creation of consecutive funds, what you're doing is you're really looking at the market and the market as it fits your investment mandate. So like I've said a couple of times and at the start of the show, we're focused on Bitcoin. So within the Bitcoin space and for early stage and series A companies, what do we, ex what sort of entrepreneurial activity and company activity do we, ex private company activity, do we expect to see over the course of this funds deployment cycle? And the initial deployment cycle is three to four years. What sort of activity do we, do we expect to see there and how much capital can we actually invest? over that period and produce 
a good return on, right? Which is our commitment to our limited partners and effort to produce a good return. And so that's another important element in growing a VC practice is sort of getting that assessment right. And whereas in the token space, of course, you don't have to do that because of the exit dynamics that we talked about earlier. Um, but Stillmark needs to be thoughtful in that way. And so that's how we think about it. We think about what's going to be happening in three to four years. Uh, what size fund do we need to build in order to support that entrepreneur activity? And then who will those entrepreneurs be and what will they either need or want from us? And how do we make sure that that exists at Stillmark? And so that's how we grow the team and the firm. Sounds awesome. And another warning, Pleb, stay away from tokens and pump and dump schemes, please. Just stick to Bitcoin. Um, okay, I, it's coming towards the last question. Why don't I just lay it out there? If you had one last orange pill left to give to somebody, who would you give it to and why? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, well, okay. Can you can you answer it first? Who would you give it to? <laughs> uh, uh, da, 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 da. Each, I still come back to the same answer each time. Um, so uh, I still want Greta to take the orange pill to see that Bitcoin is not bad for the environment and she can advocate Bitcoin to her tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of teenage people that she's, uh, you know, the following that she's managed to amass that really need to understand Bitcoin very, very quickly. Yeah, that'll happen though, because um, if we're presuming, I think inherent in your question is the presumption that um, there's, you know, that, everyone involved there is a good actor and has good intentions. And so with that presumption, I think that will happen. So that's, you know, that'll be done. Um, okay. So I think that I would, I, I'm going to take like a different approach to this question and say that, you know, Bitcoin was introduced conceptually in 2008 and practically in 2009. So if I could um, orange pill anyone, I would go back, I would rewind to those first days and I would orange pill, let's say maybe, I mean, this is, I see positive and negative sis, but let's just go with the positives. I would orange pill the administration at that time, those in power in the US at that time, which was the Obama White House, and I would, you know, want them to understand that the creation, for instance, of infrastructure, mining infrastructure, um, you know, would be a positive thing for this country and for others. And of course, we're quite involved across the globe. And so perhaps it's something that we could have, you know, spread and seen greater decentralization and mining earlier. Um, and presuming again, good intention and, you know, faithfulness in the messaging, a part of the Obama administration's, um, you know, campaign promises and then activity while in office 
centered around financial inclusion or the desire for um, more, you know, inclusion in resources just generally. And so I would want to make sure that everyone there understood that what Bitcoin did was allow fair and equal access to a global financial system and opportunity for payments in such a way that, you know, it, it would have been received, um, it, it, you know, immediately and eagerly by folks that were in power and progressive and wanted to see, um, you know, greater sort of equity in opportunity and access. Um, so I suppose if I could go back in time and add that um, caveat to your rule set, that's what I that's what I would do. Um, and there's always an opportunity for folks to catch up. And like you said, maybe 30 minutes ago, we're in the early sort of like steps of Bitcoin's, you know, development and influence and um, maybe not development. I don't, I don't mean it in terms of, you know, what Bitcoin will be in terms of a set of um, software rules, but Bitcoin's adoption and influence and the way even even we as people that spend all of our time in Bitcoin understand it, it's still early. And so there's opportunities for, you know, folks to understand Bitcoin and how it advances some of the good hearted intentions they have, including as, you know, folks in government. And Ted Cruz has talked a lot about this. We've seen, you know, various folks empower politically in Texas talk about this and there's an opportunity for you know Bitcoin to strike a very meaningful chord and empower some of the initiatives that exist on both sides of the aisle um and and I hope that we'll see that I think we just got a little glimpse at the the beautiful analytical mind of Elise <laughs> was very well structured and thought out and the beauty of that question is there is no wrong answer there is no right answer but it's uh, a great conversational piece uh, why wh where did the name still mark come from just a random question well so still is um you know so part of the culture and how we like to interact with founders is to be very consistent and present and still there for them whether it be good times or challenging times, and also calm or still in our demeanor, our emotion, our response and availability, whether or not they're coming with good news or bad news or neutral news. And this is, you know, something that just is inherent in what we do and part of hopefully like the selflessness what should be venture capital should be relatively in terms of your practical engagement with your partners, um, especially your founders, you know, should be selfless in this way. And so there's this consistency and calmness in being able to engage. And that allows us to be more productive with founders. And so still um, is meant to imply all of that. And of course, Bitcoin has those same properties. And that regardless of what's happening external to Bitcoin, it's still there. And it's really the calm and the storm. And we have seen that both, um, you know, we see that in the world beyond Bitcoin and beyond crypto, but we also see that in all the crypto chaos, blocks are still getting produced mm -hmm. every 10 minutes. It's still happening. 
And so, you know, I wanted to incorporate that sort of um, energy and intention in terms of the environment we create in the name. So bear markets to you are just the calm before the storm. They're not bears. That's the calm. Well, in lightning, we don't have bear markets. Right. Because people have adopted the tech for practical use. And so we, you know, there's, we're impervious to that to some degree. Um, And then otherwise, as it relates to financializing BTC, the asset or mining, Bitcoin, Bitcoin bear markets are opportunities to evaluate what you did right and what you did wrong in the prior bull market and make sure that you have all your stuff together for the next bull market. It's also a time to sort of reveal what you, you know, paid too much attention to and what you didn't pay enough attention to. And an example of this that we've all seen is on the mining side, there were a lot of mining operations that didn't think about enough about diversifying revenue so that they were able to make it through, well, make it through bear markets. Um, and mining is very hard. So I don't say this to imply that anyone did anything wrong that was avoidable. Um, but that's what the bear market is for, is to sort of evaluate where you're at, how you've been allocating resources, including your attention, and to make shifts. And so that's, you know, we sort of, I don't know, I think a bear market is something to look forward to, because it just gives you time to sort of put those repeatable processes in place and the best practices in place and ready your team for your next stage of growth. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Well, Elise, thank you so much for your time and everything you're doing. Um, you know, you said right at the beginning, working under your grandfather, seeing the um, like the effect that, that had on communities. You're doing the same thing. You're part of the Bitcoin plumbing, right? To use the analogy of uh, of what your grandfather was doing with the sheet metal. I think you said at the beginning there. That's what we're doing, right? We're, we're building the plumbing for this next globally all-inclusive voluntary financial system which is going to lift our species to places we've never even dreamed of before and i'm here for it you're here for it the listeners are here for it so thank you how can people reach you if they would like to so um two ways one stillmark.com has an email link for founders and um, a separate link for others that want to reach out and be in contact. And I'm also on Twitter, at least as an observer, sometimes as a speaker, at Elise Colleen, just my first and last name. And okay. and also a lot of um, fake Elise Colleen accounts. So, um, you know, hopefully people have figured out how to discern real from fake, but, um, the spelling of my name on Twitter is important and, and that's where I'm at. So, and, and hopefully this year we'll be back on the conference circuit more. Um, although nothing planned as of yet, but it's always lovely to meet person people, um, in person as well. And so I'm hoping that that's something that 2023 has in store for us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you are coming to this side of the pond, I hope to see you in Prague or Amsterdam. They would be uh, two definite ones uh, I will be attending. Uh, And if I make it across over there, maybe I'll bump into you in Miami. Uh, Fingers crossed. Yes. 
Yes, I will let you know before or when we book travel in either three of those locations and look forward to connecting again then. It was really nice to connect with you and your daughter today. And um, I'm just really grateful that you, um, you know, created this opportunity for us to talk about Bitcoin. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. And speak again. Thank soon. you, Daniel. Thank Bye. you. Well, guys, what did you think of that? I told you she was impressive, unbelievable mind and incredible amount of detail that her and her uh, colleagues will go to to unearth the best companies, the best opportunities out there and the best people, the best minds in the space that are building these companies and the services that are going to push us forward. I, I couldn't be any more bullish on the people that are involved in Bitcoin venture capital space. It's it's brilliant. We have such an incredible amount of talent in that space, whether it's Stillmark, whether it's 1031, whether it's Ego Death, you know, Jeff Booth's fund, which is run by uh, Nico and Andy. And, you know, an incredible list of limited partners as well. Let's not forget the people that are actually committing the money for these people to go out and do the work and do the due diligence and get those deals on the table. Uh, you know, they're to be thanked as well. They are the true heroes. They're the ones writing the checks behind the scenes, not taking any of the, the accolades. Uh, and of course, the builders. Thank you. Whoever you are out there building for what you're doing, these goods and services and ideas that you're bringing to the table because chances are they're going to be taken and run with and reiterated and made better. Uh, but that's what we're here for, to do. Right? That, that's the, the true Austrian economic cycle. You know, Improve what is already out there in the market. Uh, you know who the, sh the, the show sponsors are. Uh, Alice may have even got some of these on. She might be even on the cap table of some of these companies. We got Swan Bitcoin in the US. We have Relay Coin Corner in the UK and Europe. Globally, we have Hoddle Hoddle. That's all a great way for you to start stacking your sats. Look into any one of those companies. They've all got different offerings. There's trade-offs with every single one of them. You just figure out what's best for you and start doing your own research. WasabiWallet.io are there to help you learn about coin joining. You know, experience your first one. It's so easy. The software's all built in and done for you over years of reiterations themselves. You just download wasabiwallet.io. You create a wallet, hit receive, sign a transaction, send through some sats, and just watch the magic happen in front of you. Shiftcrypto.ch forward slash bitten. And if you use the code bitten, you'll get 5% discount on the Bitbox 02 hardware wallet. That's Bitcoin only edition hardware wallet. Very important. You know I go on about this a lot. Please take control of your Bitcoin. It needs to get into your own hands. Cold storage is the best way to do it. And there's no excuse for you in 2023 to not be holding your own keys. Uh, get to a conference. We were talking about some in that show. Miami, Prague. Uh, we're going to be there. And I'm uh, looking forward to, to hanging out with anybody that uh, comes up and says hello. And join Orange Pill App. Get to know your plebs in your area and go get out there, meet them and get involved in some kind of community initiative. And if you want to um, check out my link tree or my Vita page, you will find, oh my God, there's dozens of links now to companies that want to offer the plebs discounts on their goods 
and services. You will find all kinds on there. T-shirts from Six and Lemon or Ungovernable Misfits. You will get books. You'll get merch from Shamari. Uh, there's um, even links to out completely outside of Bitcoin. Uh, so there'll be links to uh, Love Home Swap, for example. If you want to start practicing, practicing flag theory and traveling with your family, you can start home swapping your way around the world. There is a link there with the discount code. Just go check it out. There's all kinds of things there, and uh, it's it's all pure discount and and signal for you guys. Anyway, take care. Hope you enjoyed the show. Catch you on the next one.